Have you been to the place where the fireweed grows? The caribou roam and the northern lights glow. Come learn from the people who call this place home. This is the 9360. Welcome to Denali 360. I am your host, Nova, and today our guest is Troy Hinkles. He is an avid mountaineer, ice climber, paraglider, journalist, mountain biker, kite surfer, musician, photographer, cinematographer, and he's a published author. His book, Life on the Edge, chronicles his extreme adventures. As a mountaineer, Hinkles has been on 10 climbing expeditions in the Alaska Range, including the successful ascent of North America's highest peak, Denali. Around the world, he's been on climbing expeditions in South America, Iceland, the Himalaya, and various remote peaks in Antarctica. Hinkles has competed in several unique Alaska adventure races, including the I Did a Sport, a 100-mile winter endurance race across the interior of Alaska, Mount Marathon, a mountain race, which ascends and descends 3,000 feet in under an hour. Fireweed 400, a road race, a 200-mile road bicycle race to Valdez, Alaska, and Mayor's Marathon in Anchorage, Alaska. In 2003, Hinkles was a finalist on the adventure TV show Global Extremes, airing on Outdoor Life Network and ABC. Global Extremes took Troy and other participants around the world, competing in a variety of adventure races, culminating in Troy and four other finalists attempting to climb the northeast ridge of Mount Everest. Whew, Troy, I'm not going to fib. That wore me out just reading your bio. <laughs> Thanks, Nova. I'm not sure when all that happened. <laughs> We're tickled to have you here this morning. So Troy is a great treat for me personally. When I first came up to Denali years ago, he's one of the first people that I met. And over the time, our paths keep crossing. And it's really only recently when I went to do this podcast that I really realized all the accomplishments you have accomplished your adventures everything that you've done in your time which i think is really exciting but you know all those are a choice i think you started uh in the corporate world and decided that wasn't really for you so let's start with something simple what brought you to denali well after college i had a real job in kansas city for a couple of years suit and tie commuting to work every day and working 80 to 100 hour work weeks and i knew I don't know, from my upbringing and from the influences in my life that I wanted to chase dreams and that wasn't the kind of lifestyle I wanted to have. So I made the decision to pursue jobs in Alaska and happened to get a job in Denali Park for a summer working night security for $7 an hour. <laughs> Big decision to get rid of this real job that society tells you you're supposed to go down that avenue and um, pursue that path and you know I kind of threw that all away I got rid of insurance and retirement and real job and came to the park and I had five thousand dollars in the bank and thought boy I'll be in the park for the summer and I'll have to go back to a city somewhere or back home and get a job and continue on that path well after the first summer in Denali Park I'd save five thousand dollars so in those days that was a lot of money and I thought the light bulb went off and it was like wow I can live in a cool place and still survive. So I just kept doing it and that's been 30 years. What was your very first adventure that you got hooked? Oh, you know, I got hooked. I remember very vividly driving through the canyon 
coming into Denali Park and I was already hooked because I grew up in the Midwest in Iowa on an apple orchard. We didn't have mountains. I had a big family. We didn't go on extravagant vacations to the beach or to the mountains. Um, I didn't see the mountains until, boy, I was probably 20. And so coming to Alaska was a huge deal for me. And now I can live in Denali Park right on the edge of the mountains and go right out my doorstep and have these great adventures. And for me, starting out, it was, wow, I can go out and hike Mount Healy or Sugarloaf right out my door. And this, this was amazing to me. Like, how can this, how can I be this lucky? People are this fortunate <laughs> to have this. And so, you know, for me, it started out very small, small adventures. I was just thrilled to have a bike and a tent and um, a backpack and be able to go and explore in the park and in those days that's what that's what employees did it was you came to the park to experience the park i didn't come to the park to work night security i came to the park to experience alaska and for me this is the best place to do that i mean it's adventure and it's endless and it's feels very unexplored every time you go there's very few trails so there's a lot that goes along with that um I was in Scouts as a boy, as a young person, and so, you know, I love the outdoors, and so this area really resonated with me. Perfect. We have to almost start the conversation, I think, with everybody's interesting intrigue of climbing the mountain. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about when that was, what that adventure was like. I mean, I think a lot of people come here and finally figure out which mountain is the mountain when they're looking around, mm -hmm. and then they just are in awe that people climb that and have that adventure. So tell us about what that's like. Well, I didn't, I didn't show up here um, expecting or planning or being driven to climb Denali. Um, I started out small, just doing weekend trips in the park. and. At some point, somebody said, hey, do you want to go ice climbing? And I said, yeah, I'll go ice climbing. I, really, what it was for me is I was open to new opportunities. And that ice climbing led to, hey, do you want to go climb this peak? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I want to do that. And so it started out on small peaks on the north side of the range, um, Mount Pendleton, Scott Peak, Mount Brooks. And it just kind of built from there. You know, a, a weekend in the park ended up turning into 12-day expeditions in the park. and. Um, at some point, I ended up going to Antarctica and working at McMurdo in the South Pole, and I ended up on the search and rescue team. And during the course of that, I don't remember the specifics, but started talking to Ford Reeves, and he had been on the mountain several times. Um, for many years, he had tried to climb the mountain, you know, for in the span of course of 20 years or something, and had not been up it. And then I was like, well, you know, I've gain the experience. I know my chops now. I have the experience in the mountains. I know what my limitations are. I know how to do it safely. What do you think? Should we go try to do it? And we started talking about it and that turned into, hey, we're going to go do this two-person expedition to climb Denali. Um, I was in Antarctica in 96, 97, 98, working in 99. In the spring of 99 is when Ford and I climbed the mountain and it was a pretty uh, ideal picture-perfect expedition. We were 21, 22 days on the mountain. Um, you know, we're, I think, maybe an unlikely team because we're 19 years apart in age. Uh, he's very seasoned climber. I was seasoned climber in a shorter time frame because of our age. Um, and we, it was, it was great. 
we were great partners. We had a we had a great expedition. We had very memorable experiences. Met people and that made us feel like wow, we're doing nothing here. You know, their their challenges to climbing the mountain were much greater than ours were, and um, it was very I don't know very rewarding. I don't know what I I was never driven to climb the biggest thing out there, but it's more about the experience and the people you're with and. Man, that was great. Ford's, Ford was a perfect partner for that. We spent eight days uh, at 14,000 foot camp, 14.2 on weather, and watched expedition ex- after expedition try to go to the summit and got thrashed with weather, turned around, and their expedition's over. And Ford and I would have long discussions on when's the right time to go. And so after eight days, we had a small break in the weather and it's like, is today the day? And so we went, we went to 17 and Ford wasn't sure that he could climb two backpack days, you know, 3000 foot days, go from 14.2 to 17.2 and then 17.2 to the summit the next day. And I, and I didn't know if I could either. I'd never been to altitude like that. And it's like, well, we're not going to know unless we go and try. And so we did. And he actually did way better than I did on summit day. And he, I'm not sure I would have made it had it not been for Ford and his experience in the mountains and at altitude. And I learned a lot and it was, yeah, fantastic experience. What path did you take? Uh, the West Buttress. And then you know, what's kind of a lesson maybe that you took from climbing the mountain? Oh, it, it, climbing that mountain and Ford really taught me patience. You know, in those days I was a much younger man and, um, in exceptional shape so I could run up mountains and do things fairly quickly but altitude I hadn't dealt with and um, Ford being older knew knew that knew that you had to be slow and meticulous and I'm not sure I understood that and that that taught me a wealth of knowledge that alone learning patience and that cadence of rhythm on high mountains um, for everything in the wilderness that you know that I even do current day. A lot of people from Denali go to Antarctica. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about that experience. Fantastic experience. I had heard for many years about in my early days in Denali of these people going to Antarctica for the winter and again I was just open to new experiences and knew quite a few people that went and so I was fascinated. It was one of those places growing up like Alaska that was mystical and I didn't know anybody that had ever been there. I didn't even know you could go there. And so, yeah, I applied for jobs and got a, got a job as a communications technician and uh, spent a summer and had a great experience, but wasn't super enamored enough that I wanted to go back. Um, and then they, the, the hiring people called and said, hey, do you want to come back for a year? And if you come back for a year, we'll send you to six weeks of technical school, technical training. And I went, wow, that's a pretty quick path to a career that, you know, I could do for quite some time. And I get to spend a year in Antarctica. And who gets to do that? (laughs) You know, that, I knew people that were doing that when I was there. They offered that to me when I was there for the summer. And I was like, there's no way I could do that. I just didn't have the mental framework to do that going into just spending a summer. You know, there was a beginning and an end and I could get through it. Well, going back for a year was you know, one of the most fantastic experiences of my life. It just was unbelievable to be there and and live in that environment and see the seasons change and get to know people on that level for a year time frame. Really a, great. 
friend Anne Bellorier that goes there, yeah. and she leads logistics, I believe, yeah. when she travels there. And the one thing I thought was fascinating that I just had never processed before is that when she's here in Alaska in the summer, she gets all this daylight, yeah. and then when she goes to Antarctica in the winter, all she the gets daylight. all this daylight. Yeah. So she was commenting that was uh, interesting because she never gets to see darkness yeah. as long as she follows yeah. that same path. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. So it's interesting some of the things that are... Um, an interesting comparison between the two places. Yeah. Tell me about some of your races that you've done here in Alaska. Uh, well, I've always been, I'm really not much of a competitor, but I've always been intrigued by the uniqueness of races that happen in Alaska. Um, that maybe they happen in other places, but I'm not other places, so I don't know about them, but I think they've always been unique to Alaska like I did a rod which I've not done but it's a very unique Alaska race um, there's a lot of backcountry races in summer and winter that I still scratch my head and go how do they do that you know three four hundred miles in the middle of winter I just you know and so yeah I've done a few of those um, probably most memorable it with two of the most memorable ones uh, is that the I did a sport which is a hundred mile race, human-driven, human-powered race through the wilderness of Alaska in wintertime. Um, you can pick your discipline, whether it's snowshoeing, running, skiing, or biking. Um, and in the day when I did it, which was probably 25 years ago, that was the race. It was 100 miles and that was it. Well, now they do it where they go all the way to Nome, which is a thousand miles. You can do 100, you can do 350 miles to McGrath or a thousand miles, and I kind of it's bewildering to me that it's built up to that and people are willing to suffer that much. Um, the other great race I did, well, a couple is uh, Mount Marathon in Seward, which is the second oldest foot race in the country. Um, started as a bar bet and um, current day is a very popular mountain run that is, you know, 3,000 foot sprint up Mount Marathon is why they call it that is the name of the mountain, um, up and down in under an hour. And it's, yeah, it's really something very popular nowadays. Um, and I also did one called Crow Pass Crossing, which is a 26, 28 mile mountain race from basically from Girdwood over Crow Pass to Eagle River. And that's a really great run too. Very long. <laughs> it's all, it's all suffering, but in, it, when, when, when you're done, it's all well worthwhile and rewarding. So. Tell people about winters. You're talking about some of the winter sports, and I think a lot of listeners, when they come to visit Denali, that's the one question they really are fascinated by. A, that people live in Denali, but B, what are the winters like? Yeah, the winters are um, the winters are cold and long and dark. And for me, it's a um, I end up. It's when I travel a lot is in the winter because I don't like leaving Alaska in the summer, but I do still appreciate winters in Alaska for sure because it offers just amazing opportunities to get out in the wilderness. And um, with the advent of fat tire bikes, you can go further faster and see more things and travel on frozen rivers and dog mushing trails and snow machine trails. And that's amazing where you can go further than on skis in a shorter amount of time and you can bike pack you can you know you can haul gear so if you're going to camp you can do that similar that you would with on skis um but yeah all the sports ice climbing fat tire biking um primarily what i do anymore is kite skiing 
which is put a kite in the air and you're, the kite pulls you along while you're on snow skis or snowboard. And that's great. I do a lot of um, ice skating. Surprising to hear. Um, they make long clapper skates now that are kind of like you put with cross-country ski boots and you can ski up rivers and across large expanses of frozen water or sea ice and explore that way. Wow. They're called Nordic skates and that's all those sports are kind of at the forefront of when I spend time in Alaska or in Denali Park. That's what I do. Um, one of the latest fun things I've been doing in the winter in addition to fat tire biking is I'm very good friends with Jeff King, the local famous dog musher and he has dogs so we take the fat tire bikes out and dog jore put hook a dog up to the bike and it's like having an electric bike but it's dog assist and it's you know a great way to we'll go out to Nolly Park Road in the winter when nobody's there and you can just you can go farther and you're bonding with the dogs and with your friends and out in the wilderness and it's great and you know you can do that in the dark too you know beautiful at night because you see the northern lights and the moon is often bright enough reflecting off the snow you don't even need a headlamp so i've learned early on in my days in alaska and in antarctica that you can't let the elements slow you down if you're going to do something you better go out and do it because a lot of times it's cold it's dark it's raining and you miss those opportunities so i, I learned as long as you're dressed for the elements and the activity you're doing you can be quite comfortable at 20 below 30 below 40 below Learning your gear. Learn, yeah, learning your gear. That's one thing we joke about when we pack for here. You don't think in terms of clothes or apparel. You think in terms of gear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what do I? Every time I walk out the door to go do anything, what gear do I need today? Tell us about your experiences in the Bering Sea. Ah, uh, well, I spent considerable amounts of time in and around the Bering Sea area, and I current day my job also takes me to that area all the time. So I'm still very in touch. Um, when I was in Antarctica, there was an expedition, a couple Belgian guys that were crossing the continent, and I couldn't believe that they were on this, you know, 90-day expedition, dragging 500-pound sleds, skiing across the continent. So I went out to meet these guys when they finished and became friends with one of them, Dixie Dansacor, and um, he ended up marrying this woman from Ohio, and uh, they wanted to come to Alaska for their honeymoon. That was their dream. And this was the days before internet and we were swapping letters back and forth and they wanted help on where to go in Alaska. They wanted to fly into a remote site. And so anyway, I helped them plan their honeymoon to Alaska. I happened to be on the mountain climbing with Ford when they were here, so I never did see them. But a year after that, Dixie called me and said, hey, I'm putting together this expedition to try to cross the Bering Strait. Are you interested? And like always, oh, I'm open to opportunity. Like, yeah, sure, I'm interested. And I had no idea what was involved or what I was getting into. And Dixie's doing, he's a world-class expeditioner. He's doing at, in, then and um, expeditions on a very large scale. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll go do that. I mean, how hard can that be? Well, very precarious 56 mile stretch of water, sometimes frozen ice that we're planning to walk across and turn around when we hit Russia and walk back. And um, it was three years in the planning and unbelievable expedition. The by far the most dangerous expedition I've been on. Um, and, you know, I've been on Denali and Everest and a fleeting of other trips, but because it's windy, 
wet and cold, that combination of three environmental factors are hard to deal with. You take any, of those, any two of those, very easy to deal with. All three of those, very difficult to deal with. And then you put in very strong currents, moving sea ice, um, and it just very precarious. But nonetheless, we did this expedition, became lifelong friends. We didn't make it across. Um, we spent eight days and did 60 miles, but because of currents and environmental factors got pushed way south of the Bering Strait itself and ended up calling for a pickup. Um, and that was my second trip to the Bering Strait. Um, then I also tried, attempted a kite surfing on water expedition across Bering Strait uh, several years after that and was also unsuccessful because we had boat motor issues, our support boat kept breaking down. Um, and all these are mm, very challenging because of the environmental factors and the Bering Strait, but also you're going to Russia, so you have to get a Russian permit to get into Russia, which is very expensive and usually years of negotiating with the Russians to try to get the permit. So. Uh, and then on the U.S. side, you're in a village, so you're experiencing, you know, this wonderful native culture, which is a whole other aspect of Alaska that a lot of people don't recognize or realize. But that's, you know, I have lifelong friends now and on Little Diomede and in Wales, Alaska, which was our jumping off place right on the Bering Strait. I was just there last week. Tell us a little bit about your interaction with some of the native villages that you've had. Well... During expeditions, um, even current day expeditions, I do get there, but my job, I do remote telecommunications, so I travel uh, to small communities around Alaska basically to fix whatever's broke. I get flown out by helicopter, airplane, and go to these small places, but it's really the those interactions when I'm at, at somebody's community, at their house, at the Native Center, they're, the interactions with those people um, are priceless. You know, it's a one-on-one, -on -one, you hear the stories of them growing up and how the culture's changed and how the environment's changed for them and the hardships they have. And, and they still, despite all that, are still very happy people and still living close to the land and still, you know, putting up with strong, harsh environmental conditions and still finding their way of life out there. And it's pretty, pretty interesting, very different than how I was raised, for sure. But yeah, super, super people, super experiences. I think it's kind of interesting when you're interacting with native culture. I think it has an interesting connotation to different people that when you come to Alaska, you learn that is bred from mere ignorance. Yeah. And the more that you learn about any culture, I think yeah. that's a great lesson no matter what culture you come from, the more intelligent or educated you are kind of about life. You know, you're mm -hmm. talking about when you're traveling to the Bering Sea, but you're doing that for an adventure. There are people that live on those oh, coasts yeah. that are living there for their livelihood. Or, you know, we know of... Um, subsistence living and subsistence mm -hmm. living here is about the salmon and the interior and moose and caribou and that kind of hunting subsistence living on the coast is more about whales and seals different and deal. different kind of aspect yeah. i think too the other interesting thing is that 
hunting where I came from in the Midwest was not necessarily because there was a need for it. It was a sport where when you come to Alaska, it's bred from the need Mm -hmm. and the idea that when you go to these different towns, they're actually rules. Mm -hmm. I went up to the Arctic Circle area, and I think I was in Anatovic Pass Mm -hmm. at that time, and I was following, um, uh, visited a village where they follow the caribou and there were very specific rules on what animal they were allowed or not Mm -hmm. allowed um, to take and then I shouldn't even use the word take because what was made very clear to us is that the animal was giving themselves Mm -hmm. to the village for them to survive and in doing that the village was using every aspect of that animal as a reciprocal thank you yeah so I, I find uh, when you're up here and you learn so much as you can about the native culture, uh, what great life lessons that we need to be reminded of mm-hmm. that when we live in a more disposable world, yeah. uh, we don't, I don't know, respect some of those natural things as yeah. well. Yeah. You know? yeah, I spent some time in uh, on Little Diomede, which is a little island right in the middle of the Bering Strait. And it's Little Diomede and Big Diomede, and the international date line is right down the middle. Big Diomede's Russia, Little Diomede is... U.S. wild place, and is there one winter and they're hunting polar bear, and I was just like I had gone to somebody's house to do something and came back to the school and there was a guy there's total whiteout blizzard and he says, "Did you see the polar bear?" And I'm like, "No, where where is it? I've never seen a polar bear before. Where is it?" He's like, "Oh, you walked right past it when you left the school. I didn't even see it." Local saw it, chased it out of town, and, I, and I'm like, well, where? He's like, oh, it's out of town. They're shooting it, they'll bring it back. So half hour later, they dragged this polar bear back and out on the sea ice, cut up the polar bear, hand out all the meat to all the villagers. And so then, you know, and I, absolutely disgusting to watch because I'm not a blood and guts, cut up animal sort of guy, but fascinating. I had to watch it because it's like, where else do you see this in this, capacity and what it means to these people and so um a little while after that they finished and everybody went about their business and i went to this these people's homes to fix their internet and knock on the door and it's come in and i come in and here's this polar bear hide in the middle of the living room floor and i was like man you have a polar bear in, in your living room said, oh yeah that's my son he shot the polar bear today and it's like oh yeah i'm friends with your son i was out when he was dealing with it and it was just a whole different way of life. Yeah. A whole different deal. Yeah. yeah. And yet such a thankfulness for what the animal is giving to the entire village. Yeah, the whole village. You know, versus yeah. just something stuffed on a wall. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I think that's neat. Talk about some of your mountaineering. I like the idea how you, I mean, I think when people first come here for the summer, they think, oh, I want to go, I'm going to work up to Healy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to climb Sugarloaf. So I like the idea that when you first came to the park, that's how you started with some of those you know, conquering some of those mm-hmm. mountains around the area. Talk about some of your other mountaineering experiences. Well, like I said, I started, it started slow and I didn't have any intentions of being a mountaineer. Um, it's just kind of how it ended up, you know, a two hour hike turned into, wow, I can, I'm in good enough shape. Now I can do a six hour hike and now I can do a 12 hour hike. And, oh, maybe I'll go climb this. But yeah, the first, uh, the first peak I climbed was Scott Peak and uh, it's out, uh, I don't know, four or five hour hike to base camp from Isleson Visitor Center out in the park. And I don't know, it was 25 and a couple of friends that had been out there, new people that had climbed, you know, and 
in my days working seasonally in Denali, there was always a bit of a climbing community. Like you knew there was six or eight other climbers and what were they going to do that weekend or whatever. And so I knew people that had gone to Scott Peak, um, guy climbed up Denali with Ford. He's been out there a number of times, tried to climb it, has never made it up it because he gets weathered out. And so we joke and it's like, Ford, what's the problem? Go climb <laughs> Scott Peak. And, you know, I went out there with two other people on, on a weekend off work and we just had fantastic weather and just went and climbed it. And it wasn't, wasn't a, wasn't an issue, but weather plays a big role. And so from there, I would just, you know, find what peaks were in range of the park road that I could get to re in a reasonable amount of time um, and climb and go climb them or try to climb them. And like Mount Pendleton, I made three attempts on and finally made it to the top. It's not necessarily, I don't recall it being a difficult peak, but it's in there a ways and takes a little effort. And you got to find the right partner. And, you know, there's all these factors. But what I loved was it's small, self-driven expeditions into the Alaska range that I guess is what drove me is, wow, and I have to have a skill set. I have to be able to read weather. I have to know how to navigate. I got to be able to deal with wildlife. I got to know how to use crampons and ropes and self-rescue. And, you know, we didn't have an easy out then if something happened. You had to be self-reliant. And that really appeals to me, you know, and, and I guess I pride myself on I'm going in the wilderness, whether I'm going by myself or with other people, we need to be responsible enough to be able to extract ourselves if something happens. And so, yeah, I just, there were enough other people around that I could find reliable climbing partners and, you know, did several peaks on the north side of the range and flew into the Ruth Gorge several times on a couple different peaks and some other stuff on the other side of the range. And it just was really exploratory for me which I love and um, you know the camaraderie of the people you're climbing with and yeah it just kind of it kind of built into other climbing trips or uh, uh, that skill set kind of like I started out small and did peaks here in the Alaska range that built into bigger climbs around the world well talk know. about it obviously it culminated on Mount Everest so <laughs> it, yeah, it culminated on Mount Everest which uh, the first question people ask is did you make it to the top and no I did not make it to the top I made it to 25,000 feet and um, at that point in my climbing career I had spent enough time in the mountains to know what my limitations were and I knew that I could make it to the top of Everest I had no doubt but I wasn't sure I could make it back down we had been doing acclimating climbs and um, it was alarming to me coming down that I could take two or three steps and I had to sit down and rest and I was out of breath. And I'm at 25,000 feet and I've got another 4,000 feet on you know the assault climb that I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that much more wore out. I just wasn't, the wor it wasn't worth the risk. I'm doing it so I turn around. Somebody like myself that has never climbed, uh, done an ascent like you have, Tell us a little bit about that acclimation. We hear a lot about that when it comes to oxygen and, and your breathing and talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit because I think that's something most people don't experience. Well, it's really, it's really individualistic, I think, um, in that we both could go to altitude and your body's going to handle it very differently than my body handles it. There's people that can go to altitude and climb high and fast and 
their body is deals with it. There's other people that you, you know, you have to climb high, sleep low, meaning you climb to a higher altitude during the day, let your body acclimate and sleep at a lower elevation. And you slowly work your way up the mountain. A lot of people don't realize you climb mountains twice. You know, you hike up, carry gear up, cache your gear, come back down, sleep at a low camp, and then you move your camp up higher. And then you spend a couple days at that camp acclimating, and then you do the same thing again. And that's how Ford and I got up Denali. So you're really up and down the mountain acclimating as you go. Um, the problem in modern society is people want to go fast. They're on a timeline. You don't have enough time off work to go spend three months in the mountains. In the old days when Brad Washburn used to go out to climb Denali, they'd spend three months out there. Nobody got sick. Nobody had altitude issues because they're on the mountain for three months. They'll spend all sorts of time letting their bodies adjust. Most people's bodies can adjust if you give it enough time. I mean, people live in altitude in the Himalayas in Colorado. They live there, so their body has adjusted. If I fly there, it's problematic. So it in modern society, it's a matter of taking the time to adjust. So um, I know that now. So if I climb to altitude now, I approach it very differently than when I climbed when I was 25. Because then it was like, we got to go. Let's get up there. It's a sunny day. We got we got to climb. Well, that's not that's not what's going to put you on the top of the mountain. So it's it's variable. I've been altitude sick a number of times, and it's not fun. But it was always a result because I went too fast and didn't acclimate. What so do you do to take care of altitude sickness? You, you have to go down. Okay, you have to gotcha. go lower. Depends depends what the issue is, but it's basically descend. What do you think is your most, um, I don't know, precious piece of gear that you take when you go different places? Oh, it's usually something sentimental, um, more than it's something that's uh, a piece of technology or a particular ice axe, or it's, it's something sentimental that I can have in the tent or on the climb that reminds me of my life or friends back in the real world. I love that. Um, and it's, you know, that's, for me, that's part of why I travel to experience different cultures. And it's part of why I do adventures into the wilderness is it really offers a perspective. Uh, it makes you appreciate what you have back home. It offers you that different perspective of, yep, I, I have it pretty good and I have pretty great friends and people in my life and family and it really allows you to appreciate that so much more than if you're just going along every day doing the same thing. For me, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but for me. I love that. Ice climbing adventures. Um, Yeah, ice climbing is more recreational for me than it is um, uh, where I'm really trying to push the limits, but boy, I love spring climbing in Denali Park. It's fabulous. Mm, Some of the best ice climbing I've ever done and I'd waited for years to do was ice climbing in Antarctica and I was on an uh, expedition there we sailed from the tip of South America to the Antarctic Peninsula and everybody on board was game for whatever we felt like doing that day and it was like there's an iceberg let's go climb it and they'd row me over on a dinghy and drop me off and I'd go climb an iceberg and that fantastic just unbelievable experience for me but that's, that's kind of my limits. I'm not a high-end ice climber. I love it. 
I think I would be if I had partners that, you know, in my younger years that were really driven to do that. Partners I had where we were more driven to climb mountains. You so. talked about Dixie earlier, and I see a lot of his books listed on your website. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit. Do you still have a relationship with him? Is he? Um, I do did still have a relationship with him. He just in the past couple months was got killed in a got lost in a crevasse on the north side of Greenland. He was doing guiding a kite surfing or a kite skiing expedition across Greenland from south to north, and they were. Oh, about 30 miles from finishing and just put their kites down and because they knew they were in a bad area and he took about 30 steps from where he was at and fell in a crevasse and they estimate a 300 foot crevasse they went in 200 feet and didn't couldn't find them and I'm so very, sorry. yeah very sad deal but I spent you know I met him in 1997 98 the winter 97 98 and we spent 10 15 years doing expeditions all over the world i mean he was responsible for many of the you know life altering memorable experiences that i've had i mean i've been to antarctica with him north pole with him bering strait iceland greenland northern norway svalbard i mean he's incredible amazing guy anyway Uh, Yes, we had more plans for um, kite skiing trips and guiding trips in northern Alaska, but uh, yeah, not anymore. Fantastic to have such a mentor, so I'm sorry for your loss, but what great adventures you shared together, and at least when he passed, he was doing something he was passionate about. Yes, yes. Tell me about a favorite country that you've gone to for your adventures that just kind of blew your mind a little bit. Probably Tibet. I mean, Antarctica not a country, a continent, and that place is like nowhere else, Um, but the country would probably be Tibet. And when I went to climb Everest, we flew into Kathmandu and we were climbing on the north side. Most people climb on the south side in Nepal. We flew to Lhasa, which is the holy city of the Dalai Lama, and then from there drove to base camp on the north side of Everest. And I don't know where in my upbringing somewhere Lhasa or Tibet was also this magical place that I don't know anybody that goes there what what's there like who goes there and you know I knew I had read the book seven years in Tibet and which is a classic mountaineering story not really a mountaineering story but a classic story that starts with mountaineering and at any rate unbelievable and I think for me it was because the culture is like the native culture here, the culture is so different from what I live in and from where I was raised, it was fascinating. Um, Really neat experience. Nice. We were just musing a little bit about the idea of Denali and what a sense of community it is. And you were just talking a little bit about there are people that you call on when you are doing your adventures for their advice because they were the adventure person before you came along, mm-hmm. right? Your mentor. Yeah. Talk a little bit about them. Well, there's many people in the area like that that are soft-spoken and not have done, have done these amazing things in the wilderness, but don't really talk much about them unless you really start pulling it out of them. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic to have not only people in the adventure realm that have done stuff, but also people in the historical realm. For years, it was Harold by Eastwood. I would go 
ask, hey, what went on over here? What's this cabin about? Now it's Jane Bryant, the old park historian. Um, and as well as adventure stuff, I'll go ask Jeff King or Ford, like, well, what, have you been out here? And, and inevitably, I can find somebody. Chip Barker's another great source. He's been all over and done all sorts of things. And so, you know, it, it's that sense of community and people are willing to share and help. And um, that's part of what has always kept me coming back to Denali Park. It's really what sold me on Denali was the wilderness. And then the more I was here, it was that sense of community. It's like no place else I've ever been. Um, and uh, Denali's not, you know, Alaska in general is not necessarily an easy place to be. It's far from family. It's harsh weather. And I mean, you really got to want to be here if you're going to be here. And, you know, having that community surrounded by that community is really what makes it worthwhile. If somebody was coming to Denali, never been here before, what piece of advice would you give them? Oh, I would, I would say get off the bus. You know, it's, I, I only know from experience and friends that come to visit, they ride the bus on the park road and it's daunting to get off the bus and there's no trails and, but yeah, I would, you know, get off the bus and go for a walk. You don't have to go far, but go, you know, get on the tundra and experience it. And, you know, I can go in Denali every weekend and I could go to the same area every weekend and get off the bus and I would have a different experience every time and equally rewarding every time. So yeah, I always encourage people you know, go go ride the bus and see the park and then go back again and go experience the park. You've been to many countries and had multiple adventures and it's fascinating to listen to everything that you've accomplished actually, Troy. But tell me, why do you choose to live here, to have a home here? We're right now during this uh, podcast sitting in your beautiful home that you've hand built and has memorabilia all over and you've repurposed things and your, your home is stunning. It's amidst these trees and woods and and quiet and um, what makes you stay here? Yeah, it's part because it's Denali and it's this amazing wilderness and it's part because there's a community here that's uh, a close-knit, loose-knit community. Um, you know, I have neighbors and it's kind of like I don't have neighbors. <laughs> I can be up here in my house and be in the wilderness and if I need something or need help I can call on a neighbor and they'll come right now but you know a lot of people in the area don't need that interaction and that's why they're in Denali or that's why they're in Alaska and and I'm probably no different than that and so um, yeah it's it's staggering to me that I've come back here for 30 years but yet I still am in love with Denali I still have a long list of things to see and places I'd like to experience here in the wilderness. Um, and you know, that's, that's clearly not enough to call a place a home. A home has to have some sense of community and you know, Alaska is a tough spot because you're far away from where I was raised and where my family is. Um, but that I think speaks volumes to the people that are here in the community that is here, you know, and it's not a lot of the community here is seasonal. A lot of the community that's here that's year-round goes away and works in Antarctica or around the globe. It 
different places for the winter you know there's a and people come and go and i'm no different than that but there's that common thread of we all have denali and we all come back and we're all part of this community and that's i've not found that anywhere else in the world and i've been to a lot of places so troy has authored a book called life on the edge tell us a little bit about the book um well the book is a collection of stories about I don't know, probably 15 years of my life, adventures that I had for 15 years, from my early days in Denali to climbing Mount Everest. Um, I am not an English major. I never had designs or, or desires to write a book, but I had a publishing company come to me and say, hey, you have amazing images, your amazing photography skills, and uh, we'd like to do a coffee, a large-scale coffee table book. And I said, you know... I don't, I don't think I have the pictures for that. Like most of my pictures from the old days that are these great images are hanging off a cliff with a point and shoot camera. And I don't, it's not high enough resolution for a large scale coffee table book. But I said, how about, you know, a, a book with images, but coupled with stories from various adventures around Alaska and around the world. And they loved the idea. And so it grew from there and turned into a book. If you have a chance, go to www.troyhinkles.com. He has his book there, his amazing photography, uh, information about Dixie and some of the books that he has written, as well as you can read a little bit more about what Troy has done in his extreme adventure life. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Troy. Thank you, Nova. It's been a pleasure. is a production of Denali 360 LLC. Interviews are edited by Josiah Robinson. Podcast artwork designed by Daniel Karapedian. Theme song written and recorded by Jonathan and Brooke East. Special content and sponsorship recorded by James Rio. I am your host, Nova Cunningham. For more information on Denali Park, Alaska, go to Denali360.com.